Previously, on Cry in the Moon's Light. The townsfolk of Marcel discover a man and woman brutally murdered. A witness sees the black wolf and a man standing over the bodies. They run off through the woods. The Hessians go after them as the carriage driver and milady decide to flee for the safety of a nearby castle. Deep in the forest, their escape is blocked by a large fallen tree. A pack of wolves, led by the black wolf, surround them. Just when all hope is lost, a ferocious werewolf saves them and fights off the pack. The creature has blue eyes and strange markings on his chest and arms that glow in the moon's light. The werewolf pushes the giant tree aside, clearing the path for the carriage. Milady walks up to the werewolf, and they share a moment before he disappears into the night. Welcome to A Cry in the Moon's Light. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Alan McGill. I'm the author who created this story. I'll also be your narrator. A Cry in the Moon's Light is an action-adventure drama told in 15 episodes. A limited series podcast or audio story. It's the tale of a beautiful young woman who must travel across the country through a dark forest. Our setting is the late 1700s of Eastern Europe. It is a time of horse-driven carriages, muskets, castles, and when the moon is full, hideous creatures of the night. Short on time, the young lady must hurry through the wild country to be at the side of her dying grandmother. But a mysterious creature stalks her every move, and a deadly wolf pack seems determined to kill her. Armed with only her wits and a brave young carriage driver to protect her, she faces the challenges of a long and perilous journey through a dark land. But when two gruesome murders occur in the small town of Marcel, she and her carriage driver make the fateful decision to flee to the safety of a nearby castle. A castle that holds its own secrets. And what happens along the way is the true beginning of our story. Solve the mystery of the wolf. Learn the secret of silver. And discover a world of intrigue, adventure, horror, romance, and love. Join me as we unravel the mystery that is A Cry in the Moon's Light. In this chapter, having fled the town of Marcel after the murders, our driver and milady arrive safely at Castle Parlemé. We finally learn who milady really is. Eager to get to her grandmother, she must plan an escape as the Hessian's unexpected arrival prevents her from continuing on her journey. Welcome to Chapter 4, Castle Parlemé and the King's Order. 
As I climbed back into the driver's seat, I wasn't sure how to feel. There were two mutilated bodies in Marcella. We had left in a hurry to escape danger, only to have our path blocked by a fallen tree. Then a pack of wolves tried to kill us. We were saved by some... beast. Some type of creature from bedtime stories to scare children. A half-man, half-wolf that was as scary as he was heroic. He had the same strange markings on him as the wolf we encountered in the road. And a human, someone with those same marks and blue eyes was seen standing over the mutilated bodies in Marcel. This creature defeated an entire wolf pack with ease. He could have killed us too. Instead, he used his power and strength to do something I didn't think was possible. He pushed aside a giant tree so we could continue. It would have taken my entire team to move it. I felt lucky to be alive. But should I be afraid? There was every indication this creature had been following us from the lady's home. And she was hiding something. She knew this creature. Her sorrow filled the night air. It was heavy, like the fog that would come and go all night. I pulled on the reins gently to tell Arca and Killian to get going. The tree was enormous, and it occurred to me how strong that creature was. The fight was like nothing I had ever witnessed before, but to move this giant obstruction really showed how powerful he was. It also showed he wasn't some mindless beast. He moved the tree so we could escape. As we passed the tree, I saw the corpse of the dead wolf he had killed and thrown over it. I shook my head in disbelief. Our pace began to quicken, just like before. Arca got everything moving as he didn't want to be here any longer than he had to. The sound of the horses trotting along and the clicking of the carriage wheels could be hypnotic. I found my mind beginning to fill with all kinds of thoughts. Was the beast the stranger at the tavern in human form? I was already convinced he was also the wolf. The beast, the wolf, and the stranger, all with the same blue eyes. And if you take into account the witness in the alley, then all three had the same strange markings. Although the stranger never spoke to my lady at the pub, I was convinced they knew each other. It was the way he looked at her, and she at him. Then she followed him, right after he left. The return of the moon's light illuminated the road, which meant we could make good time. So I pushed the team a little harder. I didn't sense any danger, but the black wolf was still out there. And so was the beast friend or foe. He did save us, and he moved the tree. The canopy wasn't as thick in this section of the forest. Rays of moonlight were scattered along the road, and there were beams of light throughout the forest, too. This lit up the forest in a peaceful and beautiful way. The beams could be seen from far off in the distance, like curtains of light shining down on the forest floor. Every now and then, I would catch a glimpse of a few deer running to our side. 
or a few would be grazing under the beams of light, while other creatures and critters attempted to hide as we passed. As much as I was starting to relax and enjoy the beauty of the scene, I wanted to get to the castle quickly. We still weren't safe, and we needed a restful sleep without any stress. Before long, a fork in the road was shining brightly up ahead. The innkeeper had told me to take the left fork. He said it went north, to the castle of Parleme. The right continued to the deepest part of the forest, and there were no stops until you were out. I pulled slightly on the left rein to move Arca's head in that direction. He took the cue and began to move the team down that path. They all moved together as one unit in a comfortable stride. The wheels of the carriage continued their rhythmic cycle. We rolled along for several miles, taking in all the bumps and bruises the road had to offer. After a short while, the road began to get smoother. Smooth roads usually meant we were coming close to some type of civilization. The castle wouldn't be too far away. They would take a little better care of their roads. Supply routes needed constant upkeep to make it easier to move goods and people. If you have the means, you can maintain roads. We emerged from the forest to an open area that gave us a view of the majestic castle of Parlemay. It rested on the side of a mountain, sitting atop some short foothills. This road would take us right up into the castle that looked as if it continued out the back into some canyons to the west. It probably connected the great northern road that skirted the forest. There was another road, before the castle, directly ahead of us. That looked as if it went east and back into the forest. This would return us to our original route and would lead directly to Port Calibre, before the final trek to Trevor Doe. The moonlight showed off the castle's high cathedral spires. There was the glow from lamps in the windows. And although most of the windows were lighted, the castle looked quiet. Torches lined the outside wall and lit up the road to the front gate. Before the gate, there was a deep ravine. This separated the castle wall from the road. A drawbridge connected the castle. Luckily, it was still down. As we got closer, I could see a small village nestled at the base of the castle just before the drawbridge. There were the peasant homes, and they connected to long fields that extended to the forest. The pastures were from the crops that fed everyone. That drawbridge was the way the peasants entered the castle in times of trouble. A waterfall coming off the mountain to the west fed a fast-running creek at the bottom of the ravine. That creek emptied into the fields, which irrigated the crops. With a mountain to its back and the ravine in the front, it was a nearly impenetrable fortress. Impossible to breach, and with all the crops supplied by the peasants, you could hold out in there for months. As we crossed the drawbridge, a man was just leaving in a wooden cart pulled by a mule. He gave us a pretty hard look as we clanked across the bridge. I guess they don't see too many visitors this time of night. When we entered the courtyard, we were immediately stopped by two unfriendly guards. Before I had a chance to set the brake, they started grilling me with questions. Who we were, where we were going, did anyone know us? 
Why had we come here so late at night? As I was explaining everything to the guards, Milady moved closer to the window. The guards weren't too impressed with anything I had to say. It wasn't until I mentioned where I had picked her up that one of them suddenly stopped talking. I continued to explain how we had come from my lady's mansion to the west, on our way to visit a sick relative. The guard who had stopped talking ran to the castle as I continued to explain. I was about to go into the events at Marcel when the castle door creaked open. A man emerged with the guard in tow. He walked out onto the stoop attempting to see who was in the coach. My lady opened the carriage door and stepped out. He immediately smiled and made his way to greet her. It was the lord of the castle. As they went up the front steps together, the guard with the lord came back to me. The guard stopped their questioning and ushered me to the castle stables up ahead. It was clear the lord knew my lady and she knew him. Funny, when the innkeeper told us to go to Castle Parlemay, she never said a word and she never indicated she knew this place was along the way, let alone we would be welcomed. While I didn't like all the secrets, at least the horses could get more rest, and maybe I could get some sleep this time. And most important, no more traveling this night. I finished with the horses just as the guards instructed. I unbuckled them and placed each in a stall, and I decided to leave my musket tucked behind the seat. We were safe here, and I wasn't sure how they would react to me wandering around inside the castle walls with a musket. Once the horses were secure, one of the guards escorted me back to the castle. Inside, I was greeted by servants. They ushered me away, and as they did, I saw my lady speaking to the lord of the manor in a large room. The servants took me to one of the long towers. We went up several flights of stairs until they stopped at one of the rooms. They opened the door and provided me with fresh water to wash up. I was too exhausted to care. Night was upon us and I had no idea what time it was. I just wanted to close my eyes and get some sleep without worrying about being eaten or some mythical creature killing us. I fell asleep right away and slept soundly until the next day. The morning light coming through the windows was warm and comforting. It awoke me rather early. I thought I would have slept later, given the kind of night we just had. The birds were singing, and a cool breeze filled the room. I might have heard a rooster crow. I got up and went to the pitcher of water the servants had given me last night. The water felt good on my face and arms. It was refreshing to wipe off the grime. As I looked out the window, this was one of the higher towers in the castle and gave a good view of the valley below. I could see the road that brought us here from the forest. It emptied onto a long field and through a small village of houses at the feet of this castle. The forest didn't look nearly as intimidating in the daylight. It stretched for miles in either direction. There were fields of crops that ran next to it in the open valley. The village residents were tending the fields. 
horse-driven plows were making short work of rich, dark soil, while other fields had crews of people cutting hay and bundling them in stacks, preparing to be gathered. At the foot of the castle, just beyond the ravine, I could see farmers' wives at home cleaning rugs on lines. They were swatting them with rakes as dust would go flying. Others were tending large vegetable gardens and carrying water from rain barrels on the sides of their homes. Farm animals were being fed by children during the morning chores. Chickens, geese, pigs, and cows. All either meandering about or in small pens. The smell of freshly baked goods wafting through the morning breeze. I could see pies cooling on window sills and fresh morning bread sitting on counters in open windows. The sounds of bustling community far below were faint, almost hushed. Seemingly at peace with the world and existing in perfect harmony. Oblivious to everything we went through last night. As I was washing my face, taking in the sights of the village, four riders on horseback suddenly emerged from the forest road. They weren't riding in a panic, but the horses were moving at a fast pace. The men were wearing drab green garments. I could see a sword hanging off the hip of one of them. It was the Hessians. And the one with the saber? He was the leader. They were moving swiftly through the fields. Their pace and demeanor suggested they were on a mission. It wouldn't take long for them to cross the village and arrive at the castle. After I finished washing, I got dressed and went to look for my lady. I started by knocking on the door across the hall from mine. There was no answer, so I opened it a crack and poked my head through. My lady was sitting in front of a mirror, brushing her hair, with a faraway look in her eyes. When I opened the door, her gaze turned to me in the mirror. She smiled and motioned for me to come in. I closed the door behind and walked over to her. My lady, I just saw a group of riders hurrying to the castle. Looked like the Hessians from last night in the tavern. The smile disappeared from her face and she turned away from me as she asked me to finish tying her corset. I began to tie the corset tightly at her back to complete her dress. I was about to repeat what I had told her about the Hessians when a knock at the door startled us both. She looked at me with slight surprise, then went to answer the door. A maiden curtsied and said, Lord Polony would like for you to join him for breakfast in the main dining hall. Milady thanked the servant and told her we would join them in a few moments. I grabbed her arm as the maid left the room. Milady, what about the Hessians? She thought for a moment, then spoke. Let's wait and see what happens at breakfast, she said. The maiden was waiting in the hall for us, and we followed as she led us down the long, winding staircase out of the tower. Tapestries and paintings continued to adorn each hall as we made our way to breakfast. We were led through a large foyer and to an even bigger dining hall. This room was bigger than most of the peasant homes in the valley outside. There was a magnificent 14-chair table in the center of the room. The table had four silver candelabras that shined brightly in the morning sun. 
The ceiling had a mural of a naked woman lying in a meadow under a tree. The woman was feasting on a fruit display in front of her on a picnic cloth. Four fat little cherubs were flying about playing different instruments above her. Seemed a bit much if you ask me. The dining hall had numerous animal heads mounted on its walls. They were all on giant plaques with engraved nameplates at the base. There was a boar, a buffalo, lots of horned deer, some elk and numerous birds. Behind the Lord's chair, high on the wall, was the head of a large black wolf. As I looked at it, I thought, this wolf was very similar to the black wolf that attacked us last night. But this wolf seemed bigger and had silver fur around its mouth, clearly showing it was older when it was killed. Sitting at the head of the table was the lord of the manor, the same man who greeted my lady last night and escorted her inside. He was a robust man with graying brown hair and a short beard. And as the lord of these lands, he was well dressed, even for breakfast. He had on a formal dining coat with a green ascot, and when he saw us, he smiled instantly as he rose to greet us. His hand extended toward a chair, inviting us to join him at the table. Seated to his left were two other gentlemen. They did not appear as friendly and inviting as our host. Neither of them stood or said anything. Three servants came through the kitchen door one carrying a silver coffee urn and the others were carrying trays of fruit, dried meats and breads. They placed the trays on the table, poured coffee for everyone and returned to the kitchen. The Lord asked, I trust you and your servants slept well? Did you have any trouble along your journey? Before we could answer, the castle doors abruptly opened in the foyer. All of our heads turned to see what was coming through. Two of the Hessians were escorted into the dining hall by a servant, and the servant made an introduction as they entered. Colonel Volker, my lord, the servant announced. The lord rose in greeting along with the two men seated next to him. We followed their lead and stood as well. Colonel Volker and his companion made their way down the long table to get closer to us. Volker looked at us inquisitively. He recognized us, but the look on his face suggested he did not remember us from Marcel. With no more than that, he addressed the lord of the manor. My lord, my companions and I have been tracking some wolves through the night. They tracked some villagers in Marcel. The trail led us through the forest and went cold not far from here. Did you experience anything unusual last night? The Lord looked at us briefly and shook his head no. I'm afraid not, Colonel. Everything has been quiet in this valley for some time now. Wolves normally avoid people. Are the villagers all right? The Lord asked. No, my Lord. They are most definitely not Ozite. They were torn apart. Two victims. A man and a woman who was gutted in the street. Their flesh had been chewed and partially eaten, said the colonel. Most of what the colonel said was true, 
except for the victims being eaten. I was about to speak up when my lady placed a firm but gentle hand on my knee to keep me from talking. Colonel Volkar looked at my lady again. Have we met, Fräulein? You look very familiar. She looked up at Volker and suggested they may have run into each other in Marcel. She stated we stopped there briefly last night. She proceeded to warn him about who he was addressing, and she would forgive his tone considering they had not formally been introduced. Volker nodded slightly in deference to her. While she was direct, she was still polite as she told him. Her husband was Francois-Henri Harcourt, the fifth Duke of Harcourt, and the Governor of Normandy. Lord Parlamay looked over at her with a wry smile. It amused him that she wasn't letting Volker intimidate her, and then he asked, Did you witness anything, any of this, my dear? She looked at Lord Parlamay and told him the journey was uneventful that the activities Colonel Volker had described must have happened after we left. Volker looked at her skeptically. He was not impressed with the way she corrected him. The look on his face indicated he was starting to remember where he had seen us. Very fortunate for you. Tell me, what is the nature of your business that you would be traveling into the stock and force so late at night, Frau Harcourt? He asked. For you see, when Volker first addressed her, he called her Fräulein, which is what prompted her curt response. Fräulein is a term used for single women, and often not that respectful in nature. Frau, however, is a bit more respectful of a married woman. The Lord spoke up immediately. You, sir, are coming dangerously close to another insult. As you have now been told, you are in the presence of the Duchess of Harcourt, and should be mindful of your tongue. When I heard that she was the Duchess of Harcourt and married to the Governor of Normandy, I understood why she lied about Marcel. She couldn't afford any scandals. From the moment I picked her up, I knew she was a lady of refined tastes, but I had no idea the importance of her position. The mansion where we began our trip was on the western edge of the dark forest. It was far from the lands of Normandy. Maybe it was another home owned by the governor or some other wealthy aristocrat. Clearly the guards last night recognized it as something important. The governor wouldn't be able to travel without an armed escort. That would be a small army and not easy to move. And if she needed to get to Trevor Doe in a hurry, that would be nearly impossible with all the protection he would need. This was why she wanted to leave during the night. Her itinerary was a secret. I designed the journey under orders from my boss to keep it to myself for the security of the client. She turned shyly back to Lord Parlamay and told him she would answer the colonel that we needed to get to Trevideau without delay, which was why we had gotten a late start and were driving straight through. She also took the opportunity to tell Volker of her long relationship with Lord Parlamay, and that she had known him since she was a child. This was why we decided to make our way to the castle as it was on the way to Trevor Doe. And lastly, she told Volker we intended to leave shortly, continuing on our journey, 
and this got an immediate reaction from Volker. As I'm afraid that will not be possible, Duchess. Nobody is to leave these lands until we have captured and killed the beast, Volker stated. Now listen here. I am the lord of this manor, and you will. This is an order of the king, Volker interrupted him. We have been commissioned to kill the beast. All subjects of the crown are to obey our directives until our mission is complete. This includes lords, governors, and duchesses. Volker pulled a parchment from his coat pocket and handed it to the lord. The parchment had a wax seal with the king's signet. The lord broke the seal to read the document. When he finished, he handed the open paper to his son, who was seated to his left. After the son was done reading it, he passed it to the gentleman seated next to him. Very well, Colonel. But you would do well to remember I am still the lord of this manor. You will show me the respect of my position, or I shall discuss the matter with the king personally. Volker bowed his head slightly. As of course... I only wish to complete my mission and keep everyone safe. Now, if I may, my men and I need some rest, so we may continue our hunt later tonight. And with that, Volker and his man departed the dining hall. After they left, the Lord addressed my lady again. I'm sorry, my dear. I know you are anxious to get to your grandmother's side, but your safety must take a priority right now. It appears you must stay at least one more night. I hope last night was acceptable. She bowed slightly and thanked Lord Parlamay again for his hospitality. She told him our sleep was restful and just as warm as she remembered. She also thanked him for receiving us on such short notice. Seeing that Lord Parlamay, his son, and the other gentlemen were hanging on her every word, she decided to state again that the journey had been uneventful. Albeit tiring and cold, she told them we saw nothing of the troubles the colonel talked about, and that we only wished to get on our way so she could see her grandmother before she passed. The lord smiled about his head slightly, saying, I haven't seen you since you left, child. Your family worked these lands for many years. I was sad to see you go. After your accident, I lost touch with your father but have monitored your progress. I was happy to hear of your marriage to the Duke. The Lord paused before continuing. Unfortunately, I'm afraid the papers Colonel Volker presented are in order. You must remain here for at least one more night. We are delighted to have you, though, even if the circumstances are not ideal. My lady nodded graciously. She knew there was no point in arguing. If the king had made that decree, nobody would disobey. To do so could risk the guillotine. Lord Parlamay shifted the topic gracefully. I'm sure you remember my son as you played together as children. The lord said, extending his hand toward the man seated to his right. If you remember, this is William. Someday he'll be the lord of this manor. We'll have to deal with things like Colonel Volker. Let's not hope any time soon, father, William said with a smile as he bowed his head slightly to my lady. 
It is good to see you again, he finished. I was still thinking about Volker and a little in shock that we would not be allowed to leave. But there was something strange about William. He didn't say anything while Volker was in the room, but there was an odd look on his face that was hard to describe. I didn't like him. Unlike his father, Lord Parlamay, who was easy to like, William was smug. The way he addressed my lady seemed insincere. He was going along with the events of the day, but his demeanor suggested he had a hidden agenda. William's features were more defined than his father. The morning coat he wore couldn't hide his broad chest and strong shoulders. His hair was jet black and very thick. His jaw and chin were chiseled, which made his sideways grin edgy. He got the impression he knew how handsome he was, and he liked everyone else to know that he knew it too. After introducing his son, Lord Parliament introduced the other gentleman. And to the left of William is the captain of my guards. May I present Jonathan Boxlow. Boxlow bowed his head slightly in greeting. He was a more serious man than William. He wasn't smug or full of himself. When he bowed, it wasn't just polite, but respectful. Although he was neat in appearance, his beard was a bit long. He was rough and unrefined, lean, almost skinny, and although he wasn't as big as William, he gave the impression he could handle himself. A scrapper who had already survived the odds, he was clearly a dangerous man. He didn't like Volker telling us we couldn't leave either, but he was also a soldier and understood orders. When he read the parchment, he didn't argue. There wasn't much we could do now, so we ate breakfast since we couldn't leave. As we ate, William began to speak. I'm glad to hear your journey was uneventful. You must have gotten very lucky leaving Merceau when you did. Forest can be a little troublesome for folks. You didn't see anything unusual? He asked skeptically. My lady looked up and smiled. She told William it was good to see him again. and Then she bowed slightly to Captain Barkslow, stating it was a pleasure to make his acquaintance. She expressed her disappointment at the circumstances, but felt safe with their being in charge. Then William spoke up again. Aside from the ghost stories and great beasts, we've heard of some travelers encountering thieves in the forest. It was lucky you didn't run across them. Highwaymen can be a murderous and nasty group. William paused and spoke again. Night is an unusual time to travel. Indeed, my lady replied. Traveling at night is a bit risky, but I need to get to Trevor Doe as soon as possible. Grandmother's illness made it urgent. I haven't seen her since I married. She said, pausing for a moment before expressing we were lucky to have left Marcel when we did. William smiled and nodded. The look on his face suggested he didn't believe her. He didn't press the subject, but I could see it in his eyes. He knew she was lying. William pointed to the head of the black wolf hanging on the wall behind his father. His voice was dark and grim as he spoke. I killed him about a year ago, not far from here, in the forest. It was a pretty intense hunt. He was a worthy adversary, but no match for me. 
William further stated. Wolves can be very large and dangerous in these parts. Volker's going to have his hands full if he encounters one like that one. William went on to boast about how he and a few friends had scoured the countryside hunting packs of wolves. They killed countless numbers, hung their pelts on trees for all to see. Wolves had been killing some of their livestock. It got so bad villagers had to stand watch over their animals. Some of them had herd dogs to help, but they were no match for a pack of wolves. None of the people in this village had been hurt, but they were afraid. There had been a number of people killed on the road in the wild country. Rumors of these packs and mutilated deaths persisted. It got so bad the villagers would bring their herds inside the castle walls for protection. This created a problem and a more permanent solution was needed. Lord Parlamade decided to dispatch William and some men to eradicate the wolf problem. They hunted and killed every wolf for miles. The land had been peaceful for a while, at least until now. William clearly enjoyed killing. It wasn't just the way he talked about killing the wolves. His eyes lit up when he talked about killing anything. He even enjoyed talking about the animal mounts in the room. He recalled stories of old hunts as if he was reliving every moment. He was more descriptive when talking about blood and gore, and he got more excited describing the moments of each animal's death. I've been around hunters all my life. My father and uncles would go on hunting trips into the country for food. They all came back with stories. But the way William was describing things... There was something deeper disturbing. After we finished eating, my lady stood up and excused herself, thanking them for the meal and stating that if we must stay, she was to take a walk outside in the fresh air. As is polite custom, the Lord William and Mr. Barkslow all stood as the lady rose. Whatever you need, my dear, please feel free to explore the castle. I would recommend staying within the walls. The drawbridge shall remain down for now, but if there is trouble, it will be raised. There is no other way into the castle, said Lord Parlamé. My lady smiled and began walking out of the hall with me following. We went outside into the courtyard, and there were several guards at the gate keeping an eye on the road. Peasants were moving around within the castle walls doing various chores. My lady made her way to the stables. I stayed with her as we passed the guard barracks. The Hessians were resting outside. Two of them were leaned up against the wall with hats over their eyes. Another was sleeping on a wooden bench. The Hessian colonel was seated at a wooden table outside. He was looking over a map, consulting with one of his men. They lifted their heads to watch us walk by. My lady bowed her head to the colonel as a sign of acknowledgement and respect. The colonel leaned back in his seat. He did not return the nod. They watched as we walked to the stable. The Hessian horses were in the front stalls. They were resting from the previous night. Arca and Killian were in a few stalls further down. They were anxious to get outside. Our team had plenty of rest now and looked eager to get going. My lady looked over at the Hessian saddles as she made her way to Arca's stall. She had grabbed a couple of apples from a bucket just outside the door. 
Arca was moving his head up and down when he saw her. He clearly liked her. She walked up to Killian first and gave him an apple. Arca's head was moving more intensely as he grew impatient. After Killian was done, she moved over to Arca. As she fed him an apple and stroked his muzzle, she looked over at the carriage. Then she asked me how long it would take to harness the team. My lady, you want me to harness the team? She told me not yet, but wanted to know how long it would take me to prepare them. She looked back out the barn door and firmly stated we were not staying. What about the king's order, my lady? She looked at me with a question on her face. Is that a problem? No, no, mademoiselle. Whenever you give the order, we will leave. I'm just not sure we can get past the guards or the Hessians. I don't trust the Hessians, and I suspect you don't either. She told me to be ready, as we might be stuck here for now, but when the opportunity presented, we were leaving. I'm with you, of course, my lady. But what about the Black Wolf and the other thing? We'll be okay. But we might not if we stay here. Stay tuned for a preview of our next exciting chapter. I'm your host, Alan McGill. Thank you for joining me on this episode of A Cry in the Moon's Light. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us and click the like button, as well as leaving a review in the comments section. By doing this, it helps promote the show so we can gain more support. You can also show your support by going to buymeacupofcoffee.com forward slash Alan McGill. It's a good way to support authors and artists like myself. You can even download the Buy Me a Cup of Coffee app to make your contributions even easier. When you buy me a cup of coffee, you're not just supporting me, but you're supporting the show. While I am the narrator, sole producer, and performer, that cup of coffee helps me purchase the sound effects, artist illustrations, and original music written and performed by Joseph McDade. Go to buymeacupofcoffee.com forward slash Alan McGill. Before I sign off, I want to take a moment and acknowledge some great supporters of the show, like Joseph McDade, who provides original music to shows like this. You can find Joe at josephmcdade.com. Todd Yuri of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, who provided a quiet place to record the narrations for this show, and is always a supporter of the arts. Visit Todd at the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I want to thank the Writing Community Chat Show for their support of the show. The Writing Community Chat Show is a podcast that supports authors whenever they can, and they always have fascinating guests and interesting topics. I'd also like to thank another friend of the show, talented Morgan Wright. Morgan is an author and has a book cover animation service. She has animated over 4,500 book covers and book trailers. I've seen some of her animations and they are really amazing. You can reach Morgan at morganwrightbooks.com, all one word. 
or on Twitter at ByMorganWright. And lastly, I want to thank you again for being here. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you join me again for another exciting episode of A Cry in the Moon's Light. In the next chapter, the lockdown at Castle Parlement continues. Colonel Volker confronts the carriage driver on his time in Marcel. We also learn the haunting past of Colonel Volker and the Hessians as their entire history is explained and why they are determined to kill the werewolf. Who are these Hessians? What haunting thing happened to Colonel Volker and his company? Find out next time in Chapter 5, The Hessians. This podcast is the creation of Alan McGill. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.